Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Joshua. If you're visiting with us this morning, I, I, we preach through books of the Bible here. Yes, all the way through entire books. And we preach from all of Scripture because the Bible itself says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so we're in Joshua chapter 5 this morning as we're making our way through this book. And so let's begin by reading this chapter of Scripture together. Joshua chapter 5, and if I would not be in Judges, that would be helpful. (laughs) Joshua chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to to this day. When the people of Israel were camped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. And let me pray and ask his blessing upon it. Our God, we just pray that you would feed our souls with your word, that nourishment that is spiritual in nature, that only your Holy Spirit can accomplish. Wash us with the water of your word this morning from Joshua chapter 5. Help us to understand it and to accept it as you soften our hearts and illumine them. With the word, by the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When a person becomes a Christian, they become a follower of Jesus. When a person is saved by Jesus from the power and penalty of their sins, they are also enlisted into his service. To be a beloved child of God is at the very same time to be a devoted servant of his son. For as Paul told Titus, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And Christ has given to us his word in the scriptures and his Holy Spirit to dwell within us to enable us to serve him well in this way. Now, some of us here this morning may need to come to grips with that basic fact, that if you are a Christian, you are, as the apostles so often called themselves, a bondservant of Christ. Serving Christ, in other words, is not just something you squeeze into your life if you have time. Your life, rather, is forfeit to him. And you must seek to do his will with all the opportunities and resources that he has given to you. I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, 15. He said, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. But once we come to understand this, and we are ready to dedicate our lives to serving Christ, there's something else that we need to consider. You see, some of you might be willing to serve Christ, but not quite ready to do so effectively because of spiritual disorder in your lives. In other words, there may be areas of your life in which you're really not right in your relationship to God. Maybe, for instance, you've simply, you've professed faith in Christ, but you've never been baptized. You've never become part of a local church where you can experience accountability and pastoral care and serve. Or perhaps you've been just flat out neglecting all the means by which God works in our lives. Prayer, reading the scripture, gathering with your local church for corporate worship evangelizing, giving, and on and on. Or maybe you've been engaged in sinful behavior and rather than repenting of it, you've been holding on to it, nurturing it, and rationalizing it away. And because of this kind of disorder in your spiritual life, you're really not in a position to serve Christ effectively even if you say, I'm ready to do so. Some preparation is necessary before you are, as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2.21, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. As it turns out, this principle, I think, is the focus of Joshua chapter 5. The nation of Israel, God's old covenant people, they had crossed over the Jordan River, in a miraculous way, and they were poised to begin conquering the promised land as God had instructed them to do. But here in Joshua 5, we see they're not quite ready to do that because there were certain areas in their life in which they really were not right with God. And these things had to be resolved before they could serve God effectively going forward. So this chapter is all about God in his abundant mercy and patience with Israel, sitting them down and resolving some issues in their life that would prepare them then to be able to carry out the conquest of Canaan. So in order to show you that, let's walk through this story of Joshua 5 and experience it again together. And then at the end, I'll try to point out what I think God is intending us to take away from it as his people today. So Joshua chapter 5, let's walk through this story together again. Now remember that in the two chapters before this, chapters 3 and 4, the Lord had miraculously parted the waters of the Jordan so that the nation of Israel could cross over on dry land. It was like the Red Sea all over again. And now chapter 5 opens by telling us what effect that event had had upon the people living in the land of Canaan. So it says that 
Quote, when they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. You know, if you go back to chapter 2, you'll remember that we had heard out of the mouth of Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, that she had said that her people were already terrified of the Israelites because they had heard of how the Lord had given them victory over those two mighty kings just on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. So they're already terrified, but they know that this Jordan River that lay between Israel and them was at flood stage, that it would be almost impossible for you know two or three million people with men, women, children, and cattle and livestock to cross over at this point. So they probably thought that this gave them a little bit of breathing room But when the Canaanites heard about Israel's miraculous crossing, it completely demoralized them. And one can imagine that they just hold up inside their cities in terror. In fact, in the next chapter, we'll see that that's exactly what the people of Jericho were doing. And as it turns out, this would actually be important for Israel's protection at this point, because as we'll see in the next section, Israel's entire army was about to be put out of action for a few days. One commentator, David Firth, has pointed out a certain pattern that emerges in the first five chapters of Joshua. It's a pattern of unexpected delay. So, for instance, in chapter 1, Israel goes about preparing to cross over the Jordan and begin conquering Canaan. But then chapter 2 records an unexpected delay in the story of Rahab and the two spies. And in chapters 3 and 4, the Lord parts the Jordan, Israel crosses over, and they're ready to be in conquering Canaan. But in chapter 5, there's another unexpected delay. And the reason for this second delay is revealed in chapter 5, verse 2. There it says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now, think about it. That command should evoke shock and a double take to the readers. Because remember, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant that had been instituted back in Genesis chapter 17, there the Lord had told Abraham that every male descendant was to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth as a sign that they belonged to his covenant people who would inherit the Abrahamic promise. And you remember, he had warned, he'd said, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So when you come to Joshua chapter 5, verse 2, and everything seems to be going great, And then the Lord commands Joshua, okay, stop, you need to circumcise the nation again. A reader who's familiar with the Old Testament to this point would be saying, what? You mean the Israelites weren't circumcised when they entered the promised land under Joshua? Here the Lord is about to fulfill the promise he had made to Abraham to give his descendants the land of Canaan, and we discover they had forsaken the very sign that marked them off as heirs of that promise. It was a nationwide breach of the Abrahamic covenant. How could this possibly have happened? Well then, I just want to pause at this point. By the way, circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. In the same way as it would be shocking to find an Israelite who had neglected circumcision, it should be shocking to find Christians who have neglected baptism. Now, of course, there are issues regarding when to baptize children who profess faith in Christ. But to find an adult believer who's never been baptized, just never saw the point of it, That should also be a shock. If there's anyone here in that position, you need to realize that you need to address that right away. Baptism is a sign 
that you belong to the new covenant. Well, getting back to this question, how could this have possibly happened? You know, the author of Joshua takes some time to explain this shocking reality in verses 4 through 7. Why? The nation of Israel, who was about to take possession of the Abrahamic promise, had not received the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, namely circumcision. And essentially he says that when the Lord had brought the nation of Israel in the previous generation out of Egypt at the Exodus, they had been circumcised. But after he had sentenced that generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years as a judgment for their rebellion against them, well, they didn't bother to circumcise their kids. It was an act of disobedience upon the part of that original Exodus generation of Israelites, which reflected the fact that they had apostatized from God by and large. So the next generation of Israelite males, whom now the Lord was about to bring into the land of Canaan in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, they now were uncircumcised as a result. And of course, it wasn't their fault that their parents hadn't circumcised them, but nevertheless, it was a national scandal which needed to be addressed before they could just move forward. In essence, The Abrahamic covenant needed to be renewed, you might say, with this new generation of Abraham's descendants before they could inherit the Abrahamic promise. So that's what Joshua did. We see it there in verse 3. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gebeath Harloth, which, by the way, means hill of foreskins. This was a gruesome event. Now, the reason why they used flint knives, that was probably because that substance flint, if you've ever seen obsidian arrowheads, it's kind of like what this substance was. It could be made very sharp, and it was very abundant in that region. So, I mean, it was important that they have a lot of these knives, as we're talking about probably hundreds of thousands, if not over a million males in Israel who needed to be circumcised all at the same time. So a lot of cutting tools would be required. Now I know the elephant in the room is some of you may not know what circumcision is. So if you're a kid, ask your parents about it later. (laughs) If you're an adult, Google it. Not right now. But suffice it to say, it involved a very sensitive part of the male anatomy and would have left the Israelite males in a lot of pain for several days. And that's why the Bible is very real and raw. Verse 8, it says, When the circumcision of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And if you think about it, this would have also left Israel quite vulnerable militarily, wouldn't it? As I mentioned earlier, it meant that Israel's army was out of action for a number of days. Now, normally that might not have been a big deal, but they had just crossed over the Jordan. They're camping miles away from Jericho. They're in enemy territory. And now their army's out of commission for a few days. In fact, it's very interesting. If You, you might remember that story. After a Shechemite raped Jacob's daughter in Genesis 34, It says that Jacob's sons came up with this scheme. They tricked the Shechemites into being circumcised, and then while they were still healing, they went and slaughtered all of the Shechemites. It was a terrible act of cruelty and deception. Well, that could have easily happened here, couldn't it? And yet, the Canaanites wouldn't take advantage of Israel's temporary vulnerability because, as we saw in verse 1, they had been rendered impotent with dread because... They had heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan to let them across. So while the men of Israel are recovering from circumcision, the Canaanites are probably holed up in their cities, trembling in fear and this great irony. In fact, we look at it and we go, that was a remarkable bit of providential protection on the Lord's part. You know, it's worth pausing here and just reflecting on everything we've seen so far, and what it reveals about the character of God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. What a testimony this is to his steadfast love that 
phrase that so often, at least in the older versions, was used to translate the Hebrew word hesed, which meant a loyal love to those you were in covenant relationship with. This is what God had toward Israel. He loved them, and he was loyal to them in that love. This is what we see here. Here were the descendants of Abraham standing before God, uncircumcised, having violated the primary stipulation of their Abrahamic covenant between God and them. And yet here he was, graciously about to give them the land, just as he had promised. And then he continued to so order the events of their lives that they were protected from harm along the way. You see, if we boil it down, we see this about God. God remained faithful to his people when they, in their weakness and sin, were unfaithful to him. Why? For his name's sake. Because that's the type of God that he is. You remember how Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2.13? He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What good news that is to us as sinners, because I don't know about you, but I fail every single day to be faithful to God in all the ways that I should. We can know that our God, who, by the way, is Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is our God too. We can know that as he's revealed himself to Moses in Genesis 34, that he is a God, sorry, Exodus 34, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And yes, it does go on to say that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. In other words, he punishes those who harden their hearts against him and refuse to repent of their sin. And yet, we can always come to him with our sin and with our failings, and we can cry out to him for mercy as our heavenly father, and we'll find him willing to forgive. He will not cast us off. He remains faithful to us as his new covenant people in Christ, protecting us even from falling away, despite how, as the old hymn puts it, prone we are to wander from him. So let us rejoice and give thanks to God for his steadfast love and faithfulness to us, even though we are unfaithful to him. So in verses 2 through 8, we discovered to our shock that the nation of Israel, on the eve of receiving the promised land, was uncircumcised in violation of the Abrahamic covenant. They were not right with the Lord in this respect. And so before they began taking possession of the land, the Lord stopped them, and in his mercy he ordered them to renew the Abrahamic covenant by ordering that all the Israelite men be circumcised. And then after going through that painful process, quite literally, a major source of disorder in their relationship with the Lord was put right again. We read in verse 9 this wonderful phrase that says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. No longer would the Egyptians deride them for wandering around in the desert for 40 years after the Exodus. You think about it, the Egyptians, whatever happened to those Israelites anyway? Oh, they're out wandering in the desert some way. No longer would the disobedience of their fathers be a source of shame for them. That day, as all the Israelite males were circumcised, And the nation was marked off once again as the rightful heirs of the Abrahamic promise. The Lord had rolled away their reproach. That place was called Gilgal, which in Hebrew means roll away. It seemed like everything was right again between God and Israel. But actually, what we see next is that it it wasn't quite right yet. Rather, we see in verses 10 through 12 that there's still more to do in this regard. 
I want to take you back to the Exodus. The Exodus was that event in history where the Lord delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand. Every time we talk about the Exodus, my kids think immediately of that Steven Spielberg movie, um, The Prince of Egypt. I'm trying to get it. So hopefully later on in their life, they'll think primarily of the book of Exodus and then, you know, maybe secondarily of a movie like that. But you know how it is when we're kids. But it's a glorious event in redemptive history. It was the most important redemptive event in the history of the nation of Israel. So what the cross is to God's new covenant people, the exodus was to his old covenant people. And just as Christ established the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate today, to commemorate the cross to the church, well, God established the Passover to commemorate the exodus for Israel. So the Passover was a festival, a feast day, in which the nation of Israel was commanded to celebrate on the 14th day of the first month of every year as a perpetual reminder of the Exodus. Now, when you read the regulations regarding the Exodus in the Pentateuch, so if you go to Exodus 12:48, you see that the Lord told Israel that circumcision was required to celebrate the Passover. Now, what I want to suggest is that something that isn't stated explicitly in our text, but seems to me to be strongly implied, is that if this generation of Israelites who had apostatized from the Lord, by and large, if they hadn't bothered to circumcise their children, chances are they weren't either celebrating the Passover. Well, this was another shocking covenantal breach, wasn't it? This time it was a breach of the old covenant, the covenant they had made with God at Mount Sinai. And this too had to be addressed before they could move forward with the conquest of Canaan. So you might say it this way, after renewing the Abrahamic covenant with God by taking the sign of circumcision, this new generation of Israelites also had to renew the old covenant with God, the Sinai covenant with God by restoring the celebration of the Passover. And this is what happened in verse 10 of our text. You see it there. It says, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. It's interesting to note that the text of Joshua tells us in multiple places that the entrance of Israel into Canaan after 40 years of wandering in the Sinai desert corresponded almost to the day with the Passover celebration, which commemorated their exit out of Egypt. So last time, not last week, but the last sermon, when we looked at chapter 4, we saw in chapter 4, verse 19, it said, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Now that was the very day that the Lord had instructed Israel in Exodus 12.3 to select a lamb to sacrifice on the Passover. That's why the day is mentioned, because of its significance. Now, in chapter 5, verse 10, we're told that four days later, quote, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. That was the day that the Lord had instructed Israel in Exodus 12.6 to slaughter the lamb and celebrate the Passover feast. In other words, do you see the timing of Israel's entrance into Canaan corresponded almost exactly to the day with the Passover feast, commemorating Israel's exodus out of Egypt. And the fact that the text of Joshua emphasizes this correspondence by mentioning the days is meant to highlight, I think, the providence of God. The providence of God by the way, if we're just to simplify it down, it is the ongoing activity of God to preserve and to govern his creation. It includes his activity to maintain the existence of his creatures, to direct their every action, to bring about his ultimate purposes for them. 
It's something that is referred explicitly to the Bible in some places, like Ephesians 1.11, where it says he works all things uh, according to the purpose of his will. But it's also mentioned more frequently implicitly by showing us these, what you might call, coincidences, which are really meant to point you to the providence of God ordering all these events according to his purposes. So as the author emphasized the way that the entrance of Israel into Canaan corresponded to the day with the Passover, celebrating the exit of Israel out of Egypt, the reader's not meant to say, well, that's a strange coincidence. No, but reader's meant to say, God did that. It affirms, once again, to the people of God who are reading these scriptures that God is in control of human history. He is ordering all the events of human history to bring about his good and wise purposes. And this is good news, by the way. Because we know that the things that he has promised to do for us in Christ are glorious beyond comprehension. So the providence of God guarantees, for instance, our eternal glory. You think of Paul, 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says that all the tribulations of his life are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can know that God is doing that, accomplishing that, through all the events of your life. You just have to ask yourself, do I believe that? Interestingly, getting back to Joshua 5, we're told in verses 11 through 12 that the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land. A little later it says, And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Okay, this was a major turning point in the history of Israel, wasn't it? The wilderness wandering period, done, over. Thank goodness, right? No one's... Looking back to that time and reminiscing, Israel's life now in the promised land had begun. You see, they're eating of the produce of the land instead of manna out of heaven was, you might say, an initial foretaste of this inheritance of the promised land which they were to experience more fully at the end of the conquest. This is the beginning. By the way, We have to just pause here at this turning point in redemptive history to recognize the way that it actually foreshadows and points us forward to a greater turning point in redemptive history, which is coming for us as God's new covenant people. You know, sometimes the New Testament uses the wilderness wandering period of Israel's history to describe what we're going through now, like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for instance, or Hebrews chapter 4. And we can know there is a time coming when our own pilgrimage, our own journey through this wilderness world is going to finally come to an end. And we will no longer have to endure the trials and tribulations of this desert life. We'll no longer have to pray, Oh God, please give me this day, my daily bread, and lead me not into temptation. But we will enter our eternal homeland, the heavenly country. And we will experience God's rest in a full and final way there. Indeed, there's a sense in which we've already, like Israel eating the fruit of the land that day, we too have already begun to experience a foretaste of that future reality through what Paul calls in Romans 8, 23, the first fruits of the Spirit. And this hope of that day coming, ought always to be before us. We're on a pilgrimage, heading to the heavenly country. And that should motivate us to persevere through all the hardships of this present journey. I think of the words of the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, 9-11, through he says, So then, a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through disobedience. 
It should also be said that when Israel ate the fruit of the land rather than manna, which God had provided for them out of heaven during their wilderness wandering, that seemed to further signify that by circumcising the men of Israel again, by restoring the celebration of the Passover, things were now right between God and Israel once again. The disorder in their relationship with him had been resolved, at least for the time being, and they could move forward now with a clear conscience and begin the conquest. And yet we see in the chapter that there's one more delay, one more event which was necessary to prepare them for this conquest. And you see it there in verses 13 through 15. It happened, quote, when Joshua was by Jericho. He seems, doesn't he, to be alone. He seems to be looking at Jericho, the first city that they were about to conquer. It's high walls, it's fortifications, the armies inside that he imagined were there. Perhaps he's thinking of his strategy for overthrowing it. Perhaps he's praying about the seeming difficulty of this task that he was going to embark upon. And then suddenly he lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, a man was standing before him. Now the language conveys the idea, did you feel it, of an unexpected event, right? Apparently Joshua didn't hear this man approaching I mean, I, I never go out hunting, but I can just imagine. You know, it's really hard to try to sneak up with all the pine needles and sticks and whatnot upon someone that close so that they look up and you're right there. He didn't hear him coming. He's, he's right there. And that lends mystery to the identity of this man. How could he have pulled that off? Well, he looked like a man, but perhaps there's something more to him. We're also told that he appeared as a soldier prepared to engage in combat with an enemy. Look what it says. It says he stood before Joshua with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, of course, Joshua would have been, looks up, he's nervous. This was a threatening posture. Surely Joshua would have put his hand to his own sword, initially at least, assuming perhaps this man wanted to engage him in combat, and yet... Apparently, there's something about this man that indicated that he might not be there to attack Joshua. Because in verse 14, it went on to say that Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So it appears that Joshua didn't know quite what to make of this man. He clearly wasn't an Israelite soldier, but he also didn't seem to be a Canaanite soldier either. So whose side was he on? The man's answer is recorded in verse 14. He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now, by saying no to Joshua's question, the the man clarified that he wasn't a member of either the Israelite army or the Canaanite army. Instead, he revealed he's the commander of a third army, the army of the Lord, the army of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In other words, standing before Joshua was a figure who possessed the authority to direct the hosts of God's angelic warriors. Now he said, now I have come. You remember when Gandalf shows up with that army at the last second with the Lord of the Rings? And you're like, we're saved. And then the Ents show up or the whatever they were. The forest and they come and they kill everyone. This is what this is like. Now Yahweh had come with his armies. And he clearly meant that he had come to fight for Israel. So the purpose of this appearance was, in one sense, to assure Joshua on the eve of his first battle, when he's looking up at the fortifications of Jericho, he was not alone. The armies of heaven had arrived, and they would fight for him. So victory was certain. But that wasn't the only reason this man had arrived. Look what happened in the rest of verses 14 to 15. There it said, when he heard the man declare his identity, commander of the armies of Yahweh says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, 
Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So immediately upon hearing the man identify himself, Joshua knew he was in the presence of a superior. So he bowed in reverence. He submitted himself to the man's authority, said he was his servant. But when the man said, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Ah, the full identity of this figure is revealed. Because anyone who had read the Pentateuch which, by the way, Joshua certainly would have. Do you remember chapter 1? The book of this law will not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, right? Anyone who had read the Pentateuch would have heard those words before. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses saw a bush that was burning but was not consumed and turned aside to see, and verses 4 through 6 say, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Well, by using that very phrase, this figure who came in the appearance of a man with a sword drawn in his hands as the army of the hosts of heaven, by using that same phrase that the Lord used when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush, it seems to indicate that this is the Lord, having come in what you call a theophany, an appearance of God, a God appearing as a man. This is the God of Israel. And by Joshua telling Joshua to take off his shoes in his presence, the Lord is reminding Joshua that he was holy and that those for whom this angelic army fought were not to go up and say, I'm glad you're here, and pat him on the back. They were to acknowledge him as the holy God. See, this event was also intended to prepare Israel for the conquest of Canaan, wasn't it? By reminding Joshua, and through Joshua, the leader, all of Israel, certain important things about God. First of all, they are to remember, their hope of victory would not be in human strategy or strength, but in the presence of Yahweh with them. But since he was with them, accompanied by legions of heavenly hosts, to fight on their behalf, well they could be sure that the victory was guaranteed. At the same time, they were to recognize that while Joshua was their human leader, Yahweh was ultimately in charge, not Joshua. So, altogether, Israel was to take their orders from God, not the other way around. And then finally, they're reminded that the Lord was holy, And so the key to victory was actually to acknowledge his holiness by hearts of reverence and lives of obedience to him. It was this. It wasn't their strength. It wasn't by going out and really practicing their sword skills that they would find victory. It was through reverence and obedience of Yahweh in their midst that he would lead them to victory in battle. And when they disobeyed, which, by the way, happens, Joshua 7, when they disobeyed, they would find it would not go well for them. How necessary it is, by the way, for believers in every generation to know these same things about their God. Too many Christians have domesticated views of God. Instead of him being the commander of the hosts of heaven who stands with a drawn sword ready to execute judgment upon the earth in his holiness. They tend to think of him as a permissive grandfather who loves to just spoil his children by giving them whatever they want. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us. It's just not an accurate picture of his love. Rather than revering him as holy, submitting to his authority they approach him very flippantly 
did not hesitate to stand in judgment over his word. They read his word and say, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know about that, God. Such Christians, if they are truly converted, you could say no, very little of their God. I wonder if that's true of you this morning. If your understanding of God is such that you cannot imagine ever being moved to fall upon your face to the earth and worship him saying, what does my Lord say to my servant, to his servant? You don't know God as he's revealed himself in the scripture. And you need to pray for the Lord to open the eyes of your heart to see more of his glory. Well, having walked through the story in Joshua 5, let me highlight what I think at the end here is his main point and just talk about how it applies to us today. You know, the main point of Joshua 5, I think, is that Israel needed to resolve certain issues in their relationship with God before they would be ready to move forward with the conquest. They could not be successful in battle until they had made things right with their commander-in-chief. And that point applies to us as Christians in a derivative sense. I know our situation is different than that of Israel. We're not called to conquer Canaan. We're called to do other things. For instance, to fulfill the Great Commission. But the principle at stake in this chapter remains the same. We will not be ready to serve our Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh come in the flesh, if we have unresolved issues in our relationship with him. You must first address those areas of major spiritual disorder before you can be a useful instrument in the hands of your master. In other words, brothers and sisters, this chapter of Joshua calls us to pause, to really take stock of our spiritual condition. Where are you really at with the Lord? Are there things in your life that are obviously hindering you? from effectively serving Christ. Perhaps it's simply that, as I said before, you've you've never taken certain basic steps of obedience laid out in the scripture, like being baptized, joining a local church. Maybe you've, you've never developed a habit of communing with the Lord, of praying to him, of reading his word to you in the scripture, and so you're just distant from God. For some of you, it might be that you've been nursing secret patterns of sinful behavior. Maybe it's a pattern of drunkenness or pornography or something else in your life. Lying. Bitterness. For those of others of you, it might simply be long-standing dysfunction and disorder in your family life, in your relationship to your spouse or to your children that's really never been sufficiently addressed. It's just hanging out there. Still others of you might simply be just living worldly, self-indulgent lives in which the things of God have just been for a long time neglected for work, for recreation, for other things. Whatever it is that might be going on in your life that is disrupting and hindering your relationship with God and preventing you from really being an effective bondservant of Christ The message of Joshua 5 to you is that God in his mercy, like he did with Israel, is stopping you and saying, look, you need to deal with these things before we can move forward honestly, sufficiently, so that you might be a useful vessel ready for every good work. So let today be the day when you do that. He's mercifully inviting you to do that. I know for some it may be difficult. Sometimes the truth about our spiritual condition can be shocking. Like it was for Israel in this passage, right? That's okay. Christ has paid for every sin. And he will give you grace to get through it. Besides, what other option do we have, right? We can't keep going on. Letting this spiritual disorder in our life render us useless for the master. No, far better to face the facts with brutal honesty. To open our hearts and let the light of God's word come in. And to do whatever is necessary to resolve these issues by the power of the Holy Spirit. It may be painful, yes. But you know what? The result 
will be sweet fellowship with and fruitful service of our Lord. But perhaps what's really hindering you this morning is just simply that you do not have a relationship with the one true God. Perhaps you know the truth even, that you are a sinner, that you deserve God's judgment because he's a holy God, but that he in his love has sent his son, Jesus, to die for your sins and to rise again for your justification. But you've never truly repented. And you've never put your trust in him for salvation. You've never actually resolved to finally leave behind the acceptance of the world and its empty pleasures and to begin following the Lord as Savior and King. If that's you, then I would just urge you to do that now. Let today be the day when you finally, as the old Puritans used to say, close with Christ. He is holding out his arms to you in love. He's saying, come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, in conclusion, today we've learned from Joshua 5 that being right in our relationship with God precedes really effective service of God. And may today be the day when we, like Israel, did in this chapter, Really prepare to serve Christ by resolving these areas of spiritual disorder in our relationship with him. You know, the scripture says in James 4, he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It sings, it stings, it wounds, it heals. And we need both. Thank you for in your mercy, confronting our sin and exposing areas of disorder in our spiritual lives that need to be addressed. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've opened up for us like a fountain in Christ. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit as renewing us and transforming us as your children into the image of your Son. Thank you for the hope of heaven that one day the struggle of this life will be over and we too will experience the glory of our inheritance perfect rest in the heavenly Canaan. Well, God, we pray that you would not let us go away from this day, from this sermon, from this time of worship and fellowship, unchanged, but that we would be able to grow even through our time together this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.